0: If you have your copy of God's Word with you, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. We're going to continue our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark um, with what will be our 12th sermon in the Gospel of Mark, um, which I've titled The Farsightedness of Pride. The Farsightedness of Pride. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 14, and reading through verse 17. Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. As he, being Jesus, passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would be with us as we study together what you have written through your disciple, Mark. We ask that by it you would help us to see your son more clearly in this text and that you would apply this text to our lives that we might become more like him. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. One of Aesop's fables tells the story of a tortoise who was jealous of the ducks who lived near his pond. He would see the Ducks flying high up in elevation, and he wondered to himself just what they might be able to see. And so the ducks and the tortoise got together and they game planned how the tortoise could see what they could see. And two of the ducks had game planned that each one of them would fly carrying a stick. And in the middle of the two ducks, the tortoise would hang on to the stick by his mouth. And as they rose up, up, up in elevation... The tortoise could finally see what the ducks could see. And one duck said to the other, I bet all the other tortoises are jealous of him now. And just then the tortoise began to say, Yes, I'm sure they are. But as soon as he said that, he plummeted down to his demise. Such is the folly of pride. One of the first sermons that I preached here at Mount Carmel was on Proverbs 16, verse 5. And the deadliness of pride. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. And in our passage this morning, we see great pride on display in the Pharisees' response to Jesus' free offer to gra- of grace to his people. Here in this passage, in this story, in this historical record, we see that Jesus is walking along the seashore of the, Gal- of the Galilean uh, Sea, and he sees this man, Matthew. And he gives... Matthew a command to follow him and then Jesus goes and sits with this man Matthew's friends all of whom were sinners and fellow tax collectors and the Pharisees didn't like that much the Pharisees had much to say about that and so we'll see that in our text. but the first point that I want to see here is the sinners pardon the sinners pardon look with me again at verse 14 As he, again being Jesus, passed by, he saw Levi, or Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now we need to remember our context, our setting. Here's Jesus on the Galilean seashore preaching and performing miracles. Going back up to verse 13, we see this. And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. So here's Jesus, surrounded by people from all over the place. From all of these surrounding cities, these people were coming to hear and see what this Jesus was all about. And the word that's used here that talks about Jesus being surrounded or people coming to him is literally to be pressed in upon. I wonder if any of you have ever felt claustrophobic in a, a busy situation maybe it's at the Kentucky State Fair or at Walmart on a Sunday afternoon and you feel like you are just being closed in on that's what this idea is is that Jesus is being closed in on Jesus is being surrounded by people from all over the place from all different backgrounds all different walks of life all different ethnicities different people groups different cities and here we are in verse 14 as he passed by us, Jesus is walking along the seashore. In this massive crowd of people, he sees one, namely Levi, Matthew, the son of Alphaeus. And this man, Levi, is sitting in a tax booth. This man is sitting here, very likely actively sinning, very likely actively calling upon people, come and give me your money, which you don't really owe. We'll get to, get to more on that in just a moment. But this man is very likely actively sinning with this large of a crowd of people. And Jesus sees him and he goes to him. Despite the great number of people gathered here, Jesus sees Matthew and immediately calls upon him to follow him. Jesus picks this sinner, this tax collector, out from among the crowd and says to him, In effect, you are mine. I am picking you out. Now, here's what you need to understand about tax collectors, or about those who would sit in the tax booth, as it says. First, tax collectors worked for the Roman government. English historian Edward Gibbon said of the Roman government that it appeared every day less formidable to its enemies and more odious and oppressive to its subjects. In other words, the outside world could see the weakness of the Roman government. They could see the folly of these Roman leaders. But these Roman leaders only saw their own pride. They only saw their own assumed power. And so they were, it was an oppressive regime. They were cruel to their people. The Roman government, in other words, was terribly harsh to its people. They hated Christians. They had brutal punishments such as the cross and the crucifixion. They stole from their people by and through the work of such tax collectors as Matthew. They despised anyone and everyone who would seek to disobey them for whatever reason whatsoever. They said, we are the sole authority. You bow down to us. You do what we tell you. No questions asked. That was the Roman government. And these tax collectors worked for that government. Second, tax collectors were themselves most often Jews. This means that not only the te- did the tax collectors work for the Roman government, but they did so as those who were of Jewish descent. They were double agents, as it were hypocrites, thieves of their own family and family members. Now, imagine with me for a moment that you wake up in the morning to find that your car has been rummaged through and things have been stolen, things that you've worked hard to get that you've gone and clocked in laborious hours to get. And you were so excited to purchase that laptop or that phone or whatever it is that you probably shouldn't have left in the car in the first place. But you wake up in the morning to find that it's gone. And so you go back and look at the footage of the camera that you have, the security cameras, and you find not only were your items stolen, but they were stolen by your own family members. That's what happened here. This man, Matthew, like most t- tax collectors, were of Jewish descent. They were stealing from their own family members, from their own friends, from their own neighbors. And so people didn't like them. Third, the way that they would steal from the people was by lying to them. It would have been bad enough to steal from people, but even worse to do so by lying to them. And that is exactly what tax collectors did. That's what somebody like Matthew would have done. And again, it's very likely that he's actively doing that. With a crowd of this size, he's not going to miss an opportunity to, to, to cash in on this. To line his pockets with what is in their pockets. And we see that in Verse 14. As he passed by, Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, or Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not standing behind the cash register if I'm not on the clock. I'm not standing behind the grill flipping burgers if I'm not on the clock. Here's Matthew, he's sitting in the tax booth. It's very likely that he was actively sinning against God and against God's people. And he did this by lying to them. Tax collectors would collect debts owed to the Roman government, but they lied to those from whom they collected the payments by telling them that they owed more than they did. And so, it were as though the tax collectors would say, you owe $100, but really they only owed $75 to the government, and the tax collector would pocket the other $25. That's what was happening here. And they did that by lying to them. But here's the problem with lying. It's an insult to the intelligence of the one to whom you lie. It says that they're not smart enough, they're not wise enough to see through the thin veil of dishonesty. That I'm going to lie to them, I'm going to say whatever works to get me out of this situation because the person I'm lying to, they don't know a thing. They don't know any better. That's what lying does. It assumes the worst about people. It assumes that everybody else around you is foolish And unable to see what's really going on. That's how the tax collectors would steal. They didn't just go up and pickpocket. They lied directly to the faces of their neighbors, of their family members, and of their friends. And so imagine there's somebody like this in our community. We're probably not going to be best friends with that person. And we're probably going to tell everybody else you need to avoid them. What do we call them? Scammers. Frauds. Thieves. That's Matthew. Verse 14: As he passed by, he saw Levi the son of Alphaeus sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now, why in this world does Jesus pick Matthew? Of all the people who are gathered here, look back at verse 13, people were coming to Him. That means they were traveling from a long distance. People were coming from all over the place to be with Jesus. And Jesus says, this one's mine. Out of all of these people, I am picking this man. I am choosing this man to be one of my followers. Why in this world is this happening? Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 6. And so what Paul does here is he offers blessing or praise to God on the basis of what he has done for us. Namely, that he has set aside his people from before the foundation of the earth. Now the word that's used there is literally a word that suggests that it was before the blueprints of creation. So the very first thing that God did, if we can look at it from a chronological standpoint, although God is outside of time, He he puts Himself in time, speaking anthropomorphically, that is, in a way that we can understand. He says, before anything else, before I even designed the trees, before I came up with an idea of how I was going to create rocks and create rock formations, before I did any of that, I said, I want a people for myself. However I'm going to create this, whatever I'm going to make people look like, whatever I'm going to make lions and tigers and bears, whatever I'm going to make them to look like, I do know this. I want a people for myself, a people upon whom I can set my love. And that's what that word means, is that he did this before anything else. Now, some like to contend that this verse doesn't say that God chose us unto salvation, but just unto good works. But good works assume that salvation precedes them because only in Christ can we do good works. Isaiah 64 verse 6 tells us that even our good works apart from Christ are like filthy rags. That is literally to be translated as menstrual rags. Things that you don't just stick at the top of the trash but you put at the bottom of the trash to make sure the dog doesn't get to them. That's how our supposed good works are apart from Christ. And so it's as though God is saying, you think you're doing good on your own? You think you've got this all figured out? Oh, no. No, you need something far more than your own supposed good works. You need Christ and his work of salvation upon the cross at Calvary. His work of being raised unto newness of life as we celebrated last week. His work work of interceding on your behalf. You need Jesus. But pay close attention there in Ephesians chapter 1 to the basis upon which he chose us as his children unto adoption. Verse 4. In love, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his grace, to the the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. He did it for his love. He did it for his glory. He did it to say, I love you. I care about you. You are mine. And so here, Jesus picks out Matthew from among the crowd to say, look at how gracious I am. This person is actively sinning against you. This person is actively doing what all of you hate for him to do. And I'm going to set my grace on him. I'm going to set my love on him. I'm going to make him mine. I'm going to make him not only mine, but I'm going to send him out to be a spokesperson of just what I can do. John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, Jesus says, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he would give to you. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead, that word literally being necros, that's as a corpse. You had nothing to bring, nothing to offer, nothing with which to make a bargain with God for salvation. You were dead, not just drowning, not just sinking, not just sick, dead at the bottom of the sea, already lifeless, spiritually speaking. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, Ephesians 2 verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that, here's the point of our salvation, here's why God set his love on us, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that your faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, So that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God saved us so that in us people might see how gracious he is. Do you see that? Do you see that in your life you did not deserve salvation? You did not earn God's grace. You did not do anything that made him say, well, I've got to love him now. I mean, look at that. Look how awesome he is. He's doing really well. He's got a lot of money in the bank account. He's got all of the neighbors loving him. I've got to love him. Everybody else does. That's not what happened. God, before the foundation of the world, before you ever drew your first breath, before he even designed you, said, I'm going to love a people for myself so that in them people might see how good and gracious I am. Salvation, yes, it is about saving you. It is about making you new. It is about saving you out of God's wrath and out of hell, out of the fires of eternal damnation. Yes, it's about that. But beloved, so much more than that. It's about how gracious Jesus is. It's about God showing himself to be who he says he is. And that's why here in verse 14, he picks someone from among the lot who nobody else would have thought he would have picked. Maybe that's your story. Maybe your story is nobody would have picked me. I was always last to be picked on the playground. I was always last to be called on if I had my hand raised and all the other students did to answer a question in class. A task needs to be done at work. They're not coming to me for it. Everybody knows how much of a heathen I am. Everybody knows how much I look to get out of doing things. And yet, God saved you. If you're in Christ, you can confess to this that before your salvation moment, before that moment when you cried out to God and said, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior, before that, you didn't have anything to offer. You didn't have anything that would make you right, that would tip the scales in your favor. And here is Matthew. He's actively sinning. He didn't have anything to offer. And Jesus says, that one, that kind of person is who I'm showing my grace to. So that, verse 13, all these other people who are here can see it and say, whoa, look at what God is doing. This is incredible. But as we progress through our text, the Pharisees missed this. They missed that Matthew was chosen out of this whole group so that God would show himself. Remember Mark chapter 1 verse 1. I know I've said it almost every sermon we've preached. So far, but Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is the banner, the thesis statement. Mark is writing to us from this perspective of showing us that Jesus is the Son of God. And here is Jesus choosing this man, showing I am God. Jesus is showing that I am gracious. I am able to forgive sins. That's already been a discussion thus far in the book of, of Mark. Uh, who, who is he to forgive sins? I am Jesus, I am the Messiah, I am the long-awaited one, here's who I am. He shows that in saving Matthew and calling him to be his. One of the great hymns speaks of this sort of grace. It says, marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Freely bestowed on all who believe, all who are longing to see his face. Will you, this moment, his grace receive? His grace is marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. That God would save a sinner like me is so far beyond anything I could ever think or ask. That God would take someone like me and not just save me, but do what he did for Matthew and allow me to be a mouthpiece for his gospel, to tell others about what he can do for them, that is marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Our second point, the scribes' pride. Verse 15. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Now let's put ourselves back in the scene. Here's this massive parade of people who, again, verse 13, have come to him. This word indicating that they've traveled a distance. Here's this massive parade of people coming to see Jesus. These people, many of whom were of Jewish descent and therefore believed themselves to have a birthright to the Messiah. That is to say that they thought that when the Messiah comes, he's just going to be my best friend. I'm going to be the class pet. I'm going to be the favorite of Jesus. That's what the Jews thought. They're all gathered together to meet him. They're all here in this one place to see Jesus, to meet Jesus, to hear Jesus, to figure out what Jesus is all about. By now, the word has gotten around that Jesus can heal. Jesus is preaching with authority. Jesus is doing things that the scribes don't much care for. And so people are saying, well, we got to go see this. This is a spectacle. We got to go see this. Here they all are. They've all come from a distance. But just then, they see him walking away. They're probably thinking, what? Where in the world is he going? We've all come here to see him and he's leaving? But not only is he walking away from them, he's walking toward a sinner. To add insult to injury, here he's not just walking away from the people who thought that they had a birthright to him, but he's walking toward someone who's viewed as a sinner and a thief. Someone who is an outcast of society. So what's the point? Why is Jesus here eating with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he sitting there with people who were outcast, criminals and great sinners deserving of judgment? I would submit unto us this morning that it's for the very same reason he came and met with you. It's the very same reason that he came and saved you and drew you into his loving embrace if you're in Christ. First John 4, 9-10. through 10. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, not that we had done everything right and dotted all of our I's, crossed all of our T's, made everything just beautiful in our life and brought as a gift, wrapped up in a bow, and said, here God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation or the atonement for our sins. Do you see that? God's love compels him to track down sinners as a lion hunting its prey, and yet rather tear you to, rather than tear you to shreds with his wrath as he should do, instead he brings you into his loving embrace. And if we've forgotten somewhere along the way that it is God's grace that has us where we are, it is God's grace that is sustaining us, it is God's love that is making you a Christian, it is God's love that is cleaning you up, it is God's love that has made you to be where you are in your life. If you have forgotten that somewhere along the way and you're looking at what God's doing now, where He's saving people now, saying, no, God couldn't possibly save them. Remember where you were. Remember where you came from. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. Don't miss out what took place immediately preceding this. In verse 14, Jesus called this man Matthew. And then here in verses 15 and 16, Jesus is sitting with Matthew's friends. Immediately after this, Jesus is sitting with all of Matthew's Companions, his fellow tax collectors. Verse 15, And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house. And many tax collectors, that is co-workers of Matthew and sinners, were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them and they were following him. Do you not think that there's a direct correlation here between Matthew's conversion and Jesus' introduction to Matthew's friends? In verse 14, Matthew is called out from among the crowd to follow Jesus to be a disciple, to be one who obeys him. And then in verses 15 and 16, Jesus is sitting with Matthew's friends. He gets right to work. Matthew says, you told me to follow you. I'm following. I'm following. I wonder what has God called you to do? What has God equipped you to do? What has God given you gifts and talents to do? by and through the work of his Holy Spirit in you. And he's saying, use that gift, use that talent. Tell that coworker, tell that neighbor, tell that family member. But you keep saying, I don't know. Not yet, give me some more time. I don't know about coming to you in salvation yet. Let me, let me get some things in order first. As soon as Jesus calls, Matthew obeys. And then he leads him to his friends. Verse 16, the Pharisees wouldn't have any of this. They're not okay with Jesus going around these folks, that type, that group over there. Yeah, they're unsavable. They're beyond help. They're not as good as we are. We've been following all the rules all this time and Jesus is sitting with them. You can just hear them now. The scribes are, again, the ones who make sure everything is just so. They, every I dotted and every T crossed. When they see something that they perceive as wrong, their inner watchdog comes jumping out, barking and biting. These scribes spoke out of turn. They spoke of what they did not understand. They knew only the law. They knew nothing of grace, of love, of mercy, of kindness. They thought Jesus was breaking the law by sitting with sinners and tax collectors. Stephen Ferdick, a popular so called preacher in our day at Elevation Church, a church whose ministry and music we should avoid like potholes in the highway, says Jesus, quote, broke the law for love. Jesus broke the law for love? No, 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 no. Jesus fulfilled the law for love, He didn't break the law. If Jesus had broken the law, he would have been disqualified for making the atonement for us. The atonement we just read about in 1 John, he would have been disqualified for making that. Because according to 1 Peter chapter 1, it had to be a perfect and spotless lamb. Somebody who fulfilled all of the law. Jesus tells us in his Sermon on the Mount that he didn't break it, he fulfilled it. And in fulfilling it, he could apply his grace to us, saying that the Father sees you as being hidden in me. The Father sees you being hidden in my perfectness, in my righteousness. But these scribes didn't understand that. They didn't understand anything about Jesus. They didn't know him. And so the scribes of the Pharisees started asking questions. We've already heard them ask these kinds of questions before. Mark chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, when Jesus heals the, uh, the paralytic some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You'll remember that at the beginning of Mark chapter 2, uh, this paralytic, this paralyzed man is brought to Jesus by his friends. And rather than immediately heal him physically, Jesus heals him spiritually, giving this man what he didn't even know he needed. He gave him spiritual healing and then he gave him physical healing. But in that interim part between the spiritual and physical healing, he describes are asking questions. Who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. Now here's where our title of the message, The Foresightedness of Pride, comes into play. If you go to the eye doctor, you may have great vision. You may not need glasses at all, or contacts, or LASIK. You might not never need that. But if you don't have great vision, like myself, and every time you go to the eye doctor, your vision gets slightly worse, year after year after year, then you may be one or the other, either nearsighted, that is, unable to see things from a distance you can see up close, but not things from a distance, or foresighted, that is, unable to th- see things up close. You can see things from a distance, but things up close are blurry. These scribes could clearly see the unworthiness of the sinners of whom they spoke. Here in verse 16, he says, "Why the, 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 the scribes rather asked the disciples, why is he eating with, and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? They could clearly see from a distance the unworthiness of the people with whom Jesus was sitting. But what they failed to see was what was right in front of them. That is their own unworthiness. They thought themselves worthy and everyone else unworthy. They thought themselves righteous and everyone else unrighteous. And this is what pride does. It either produces a false sense of sorrow because of comparison and the belief that everyone else is better than you. You're constantly scrolling through Instagram or through Facebook or through Twitter saying, oh my goodness, look at how much fun they're having. Look at how beautiful their family is. Look at how skinny she is. Look at how handsome he is. Look at how buff he is. You think everybody else is better than you. Everybody else has it made except for you. And you develop this woe is me mentality. You throw yourself a pity party on Tuesday evening. It either creates a false sense of sorrow because of comparison or it leads to a false sense of security because you think yourself better than everyone else. Maybe you're the one posting on social media all the highlight reels of your life and waiting for everybody else to sulk in sorrow because of their unworthiness. And pride is so dangerous and this Is why. Here in verse 16, the Pharisees couldn't see what Jesus was doing. The Pharisees didn't want to have anything of Jesus offering grace. They wanted people to feel pushed down, beat down, ridiculed, mocked. They wanted people to feel unwelcome, unloved, uncared for. They wanted people to be afraid of coming to Jesus. They wanted people to just wallow in the pigsty of their own sin rather than ever finding any offer of grace. And so the Pharisees, the scribes are sitting here saying, who does he think he is eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? If you want to run off every visitor we have in this church, a harsh spirit and a gossiping tongue is a quick way to ensure that happens. Talking about where someone used to be is good if it's in a testimony, but it is terrible if it's in a gossip group. That's what these scribes are doing. They're murmuring among themselves as to why Jesus is doing for these people what they didn't deserve, all the while forgetting that they themselves don't deserve anything more than what these sinners did. This pulls us back up into the first point. Salvation is entirely rooted in Christ from beginning to end. Jesus is, Hebrews 12, verse 2, both the author or beginner and perfecter or finisher of our faith. It's all about Jesus. Now bear with me for just... A couple more minutes as we wrestle with this last verse, verse 17. In hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I mean, what what does it really mean that Jesus came to heal the sick and not the righteous? Is he really saying here that these scribes, these prideful people are righteous all on their own, that they don't need help, that they already have it all figured out, that they've done just fine without Jesus and they don't really need him now because... If we read it just at a flyover, at a 30,000 foot bird's eye view, we might think that. Because he's saying, I'm not here to heal those who are righteous, those who are healthy, but the sick. It's not what Jesus is saying. Psalm 14, verse 3. They have all turned aside together, they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one And if you're like Andy Stanley, who says that we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, that that's old news, we just need to focus on the New Testament, well, Paul sums up David's words like this in Romans 3 10 through 12. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So, what is he saying? If he's not saying that there are some who don't need Jesus, there are some who are okay on their own. That Jesus didn't come to heal them, what is he saying? Matthew helps us in his account of this story. Matthew chapter nine verses nine through verses twelve through thirteen says this. Matthew's telling this exact same story. He says, But when Jesus heard this, he said it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, if we don't know our Bibles, we'll miss here what Jesus, the Son of God, is doing. He's quoting the Old Testament, word for word. This is why Jesus tells these scribes to go and learn. They needed to go back to the drawing board, they needed to reevaluate themselves rather than wallow in their pride, rather than lift themselves up and say, Well, we don't need a physician. We're doing okay. What's he doing with them? He should be hanging out with us. We're the righteous ones, we're the clean ones, we're the good ones. Don't hang out with people who are bad. That's what the scribes are saying. But Jesus says, go and learn. You need to go and learn something. Hosea chapter six. In Hosea's day, Israel was in a day of great sin. And God says through the prophet Hosea to the people of Israel, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty or compassion rather than sacrifice. And in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings, but like Adam, they have transgressed the covenants, they have dealt treacherously against me. Gilead is a city of wrongdoers, tracked with bloody footprints, and as raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they have committed crime. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's harlotry is there. Israel has defiled itself. Also, O Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you when I restore the fortunes of my people. And so God in the Old Testament says that he would have followers, not just people who pretend. He would have lovers of God, not just people who sing, oh, how I love Jesus on Sunday and live like the devil Monday through Saturday. That God would have people who truly love him. Not just people who look the part, dress up in their Sunday best and come to church. But people who love Jesus and love what God can do for other people. And who celebrate what God can do for other people. Not just what God's done for me. But when I see God save someone, praise God for that. Because I was there once. I didn't deserve it. Praise God for what he did on Calvary's cross for them because he's done it for me and he's done it for them and I'm not going to sit here and play the the character of pride and say they don't deserve that because I didn't. Jesus says, go back and learn something. Go back and learn that I don't just want you to look good. I want you to trust in me. I want you to trust that I am your salvation. And God has a harsh word for the people who... Just play the part. In Hosea 6, this language might be offensive, but it's in the Bible. He calls them harlots. He calls them whores. He says that they're loving the Lord, but they're also loving the world. They're loving themselves. They're loving the celebration of self. They're playing the harlot. And God says that he will crush that he will destroy and tear to pieces those who are prideful and arrogant, those who sin against God without repentance. That he will tear them down. He will bring you to a point of destruction. But for many, there's a promise of hope. At the end of that passage in Hosea 6, he says, there's a harvest appointed for you when I restore you. So there might be a time in your life when God has to tear you down and maybe you're at that point now that God needs to tear down the strongholds of your pride. God needs to cut you down at your knees and say, you think you're something? You think you've got it all figured out? You think no one else deserves what I'm offering? But then he'll build you up. He'll build you up by giving you grace in himself. Jesus came down to break down our pride. The gruesomeness of the cross should be like a hammer that shatters every hard heart. When we look at the cross and we say, that should have been me, that should break down our pride. The prideful scribe or the purified sinner. The mocker who talked badly about Jesus or Matthew who tells others about Jesus. The person on your way to hell's destruction under God's rightful wrath or the person who has been saved by the grace, which are you? Which are you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I ask, Lord, that despite my weakness, despite my many failures, despite my humanity, that you would use this message by and through the power of your word that was delivered. To save your people and to sanctify your people. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.